Read to him the 29th scroll, 6th verse. Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn. Alone among God's primates, he kills for sport or lust or greed. Yea, he will murder his brother to possess his brother's land. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. Shun him, drive him back into his jungle lair, for he is the harbinger of death. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, Planet of the Apes Retrospective Series. My friends, I have convened this extraordinary meeting of the council in order that I may report upon an action which I deemed necessary. Join Matt. You are a good and wise ape. Garrett. The human way is violence and death. And Adam. The only thing they fear more than me is you apes. As they travel through the spectrum of Earth and into the Forbidden Zone, and consequently dissect the most primitive of all film franchises. My God, did we finally do it. From the Charlton Heston starring 1968 original, Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! To director Tim Burton's 2001 remake. We've been searching for you for so long. All the way through the latest entry, 2024's Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. I don't believe it. The man will see, the man will do, their opinions of how good or inferior each movie in the series truly is. He has a definite gift for mimicry. All coming up, courtesy of percolated media. All of human history has led to this moment. Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Released on June 14, 1972. Budget was $1.7 million, with a total box office take of $9.7 million. And this was directed by J. Lee Thompson. We've gone beneath, we have escaped, and now we are conquering. Although, I don't know to what degree, because we're not even halfway through this series in its entirety. I'm including all the remakes and stuff, because there's only one more entry in the original series after this, before we go into Apes the Next Generation, if you want to call it. But we got some business to take care of first, boys. This franchise is all about, okay, how do you make another one based on how the previous one ended? Mm, no kidding. That's the thing, is it's you know finding ways to to reinvent, change it, when when you give yourselves a finale and then write your way out of it. They've gotten very creative in what they've done. Very creative, especially with this one. Well, and we'll get to it, but every single one, I say the same thing because I haven't seen this series, so I don't know how they're going to continue. Now, they had, at least last week, they had a cliffhanger where they could continue from that final shot. As bad as it was <laughs> edited, I think we can agree that the intent behind it was very powerful. So you could definitely do something with that. And so at least we don't have an end of the world thing. We're not going back in time. We're going ahead in time. You know, we're, we're jumping 20 years in this. We didn't have an, a real nihilistic style ending like we had the couple weeks before. Now, unlike Beneath, the last film actually ended with a somewhat optimistic note, but it's kind of, you have to take that considering the previous film also ended with the two main characters getting killed, which seems to be a, a trend in this franchise, at least with the first three, but mm-hmm. they were doing a good job. They were keep, they, It was sort of like 
other franchises around this time, like Bond, they try to put out a new film almost every year. This followed suit helps that you have the same writer basically penning all of these films, but we have our fourth director who came in. So unlike Bond, which did early on kind of use the same directors over and over, this one they're they're jumping back and forth. Although Jay Lee Thompson does do the next one as well. So he's the only person in the original franchise to do two entries. Oh wow, so he does the next one too. Okay. Yes, he does. And much like Franklin J. Schaffner, Jay Lee Thompson is a very accomplished director in his own right because prior to this he had done The Guns of Navarone which is a very celebrated movie. And he did that as a last-minute replacement for another director, and he also directed the original Cape Fear. Oh, okay. Yeah, so much like Planet of the Apes yeah. being remade, Cape Fear was also remade. He had done some, some other interesting movies, but he was a reputed fan of the previous films. He was actually initially offered to do the first one, but couldn't do it for other ulterior reasons. He kind of came sprinting to the finish line to direct this one yep and we have the same writer here as well and we have four films in five years and how do you continue that you know it, it almost at this point boys feels like a higher budgeted version of star trek we have star trek seasons and now we have seasons of planet as well which i think has a lot to do with, with the popularity of star trek so I, I was just curious to know as always like what what, what they were going to do here is this going to be another episode or are we going to go on another journey and the latter is definitely what happens here also worth noting with this one it is the only entry that was filmed in AO35. The other films were all filmed with Panavision. So this one is a little bit of a technical outlier. And he's also, Thompson, if you look at his track record, this one is very... Not that the other films were littered with continuity errors, because they're they're pretty well technically accomplished almost 50 years later. This one, there's a lot more attention to detail. If you notice... The ape outfits are all colorful versus the humans who are wearing all black and other similar muted colors. And there's some stuff with the ending, which we'll talk about, that was changed at the last minute and even had to involve some creative filmmaking to get around it. But also worth noting, this film has an unrated extended cut. Well before things like Batman v Superman and other films of that ilk, which sort of put director's cuts in the pop culture consciousness. This one was one of those films way back in the 70s. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Wow. And when did that come to surface? Because home video didn't come to light till what, at least 10 it, years ago. It was later. released on the most recent Blu-ray set. Okay. Wow. Okay. So it's a recent. A recent and it's stuff. only a couple minutes longer, but it's considerably more violent, which is saying a lot wow. given this movie. <laughs> yeah. I could see that, though. I can see them having a, a bunch out of the violence. Yeah, there's a lot of the viscera and some of the... If you notice, there's a lot of quick cuts in this movie when you get to the last portion. But you mentioned Star Trek. I don't think there... In the original six films, there's... You could add up all the murders in those six films, and I still don't think it would equate to the body count that this movie piles up. <laughs> there's a lot that happens in this one. <laughs> and a lot sure. that happens in a movie that is under an hour and a half. Yeah, which I want to chip. I want to show this movie to modern filmmakers that run these franchises and say your movies don't have to be two plus hours. It feels so obligatory for a lot of these big budget movies nowadays. When back by this point they were pretty economical. I mean, all these films ran under two hours, some even under an hour and a half. 
True, but the thing about it is when you went to the movies back then, you didn't have, and we mention this every podcast, but we, we, you didn't have the option of seeing these things at home. So when you paid for a ticket then, I could see why movies would go two, two and a half hours because you wanted to go to that theater, you wanted to stay in that theater, and you wanted to watch a movie. And so... The fact that these are all, the majority of them are all, like you said, an hour and a half and below is, um, it's a it's an interesting choice, but it's also a choice made to up the amount of showings you can do as well. So I think that has something to do with it too. And this one did pretty well. I mean, it made considerably more than its budget, but much yeah. like some of the other entries, more so beneath, this one got mixed reviews at the time, which is not surprising because it, it tends to happen when you have a, a sequel to a movie like Planet of the Apes, it's always going to be judged on the same playing field as the original. Of course. And you, you know what I think of, Matt, is I think of when we did Friday the 13th all those years ago, and those movies were all a million, sometimes two million, and they, they all grossed above their box office until they didn't around the seventh or eighth film. I, I, I sense the same feeling here where the less you go, the higher the gross is and the higher your profit. You know, it's simple math when you when it comes to that. So if I were an executive sitting down and outlining these things, yeah, I would want all the apes to wear clothing because I don't want to put fur on all of their bodies. You know, I don't want to use that makeup and use the budget for that. Obviously, they learned their lesson from being out in that hot desert in that first film. And now we're in the we're most most of this film is taking place at night. We're in city streets. And so there are things being changed here to not only up the budget, but to also up the way these films are being made. And I think this series has a lot to do with what we'll see in science fiction series in the future. Speaking of the future, that's where this movie begins. We have an 18-year time jump from where the previous film ended, because this takes place in 1991. And the movie does not give you any warning. There's no recap, there's no, you know, 18 years later title card, it just plants you directly in a very different world than the one that the previous film ended in. But a world that was very in the news back in the 70s, and that jumped at me right away. You know, we've mentioned that these films have a tendency to jump on that political bandwagon and have things to say, and this one certainly does, and you get it right out of the get-go here. You know, these these apes are being taken around like slaves. We're seeing it's 1991, and God, Adam, how how foretelling was that? You know, how scary was L.A. to be in in 1991? So there's there's a lot being told here, and if they only knew just how foretelling they were, I don't know if they would have made this film. <laughs> it's kind of crazy and creepy just how much it starts out. You know, with it sets a mood. You know, 30 seconds in, one of the things I appreciate and admire about it, it does not spoon-feed you what came before. It just delves you right into it, assuming that you're caught up. And this really just goes right into it. There's no there's no pretense of the type of story and the type of social commentary we're going to be getting with this one. It, it's right here on Front Street. Question, Matt. What is the difference between the apes that wear the green suits and the apes that wear the red suits? Is there some kind of class differential there? I was trying to think of that as I was watching this, and I couldn't get from any of the exposition or anything what, what that was trying to say. Well, you're asking the wrong person, given my color deficiency, but I, my, my, my okay. assumption would be it could be based on where they work, like if it's, or it could be the ones that work for the state versus privately owned. There's no explanation given, but I think the movie does such a good job of, of giving you everything through visual storytelling for 90% of it. I mean, there's expository dialogue because there has to be, given the time jump. 
but it's all within the first, like, 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, Garrett, I was wondering the same thing. I think it's there just to show that there's different classes, and it's to show the the race relations, but I don't think it goes any deeper than just showing that there's a separation. But, yeah, I was wondering the same thing, and if I missed an explanation as to the what and why, I don't think it's there other than just the visual cues, except for people like Matt, who might be red-green color. I mean, could they could they do a worse type of colorblind for, for Matt? I know. And, and, you know, it was easy to tell that all the humans, all the people in this have black turtlenecks. So you know what they're trying to say with that. I was just trying to get an idea of class relations with the colors that they use for the apes. That's fair. I'll I'll have to do some digging post this to see if if there is an actual, like, explanation. But I I doubt it. We're being established to this new world where it is still... Relatively modern day, you know, it's not like they, they go full science fiction where there's flying cars at this point or teleportation devices. It's still our, our, what at the time would have been relatively modern, but the social structure is tremendously different now that apes have been integrating into society as we find out that in the first point of the apes, they mentioned there was a virus that wiped out dogs and cats, which resulted in humanity enslaving first apes as pets. But then, mm-hmm. eventually, it transitioned into full-bred slavery. So we're starting to see the everything that was foreboded or or mentioned as fact in Planet of the Apes. We're seeing it on full display here. Yeah, and to go back to what you were saying about this not really being a future that you would see. I mean, come on, the Jetsons was popular back then. There had to be a tendency to maybe have, you know, flying cars and whatnot here. We wouldn't have Blade Runner for another 10 years before they'd really try that whole thing. But I <laughs> I was glad, too, that they did not try to foretell the future. And they just went with a straight up, you know, hard nose 1991, which 1991 pretty much was. It's 1991, but the architecture and architecture and the police state and the Waffen Gestapo-looking military operation in this town, it's, this, this is very much, you know, 1930s Nazi Germany mixed with slavery. Good point. And we're seeing everything on, on display. There's not a news report recapping anything. It's just showing you, you know, the apes that are working in, in food service. There's some that work in bookshops. And there's some that are under the employ of the government estate. We're also reintroduced to a helicopter landing that seats Ricardo Montalban's character of Armando making his return, looking considerably older, although he bears a strong resemblance to, to what Leonard Nimoy looked like in real life, just with a goatee. <laughs> nice. It seems like all of these start with a helicopter landing. I've noticed that when we watch these movies. <laughs> the exception of the first one, obviously. Like, we, 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 there are a lot of helicopters in these movies. But I was glad to see Ricardo Montalban back. We're, we're having that continuity. You know, and, and given what happens to his character, I think it was important to show this character who Caesar was stuck around by the, the end of the last one. I, I liked seeing Ricardo Montalban back. I'm glad they brought him back. Yeah, and I do, too. Not knowing... I. Like the other ones, I purposely avoided the trailer, so I didn't know anything about this going in. And I was happy to see, you know, that you had a focus. You had a human that was going to bring us along on the journey for a while at least. And, yeah, he was a good presence last time. I think he'd been a little more known to audiences even now a year later. So I'm I'm happy to see to see Montalban here. And, and this intro of referencing all the little lines that had come before, the statue of cats and dogs and, and the reference to the virus that wiped them out. Like, this is all really good stuff because it, it's, it's amazing that it's able to 
to not have to retcon itself, you know, and, and find ways to just fold it all together to make this universe bigger, even though this is by far the smallest setting, at least in my opinion. I mean, this thing looks like it's shot on a community college campus up here in the main area, but I just, I don't know, I feel like the world's filling out more and more with every film. Well, Armando is also the only, like, strand of the previous films from pre-established characters, because Caesar was was a plot device, <laughs> more so in the previous mm-hmm. film, not necessarily a fully-fledged character. Unless you want to count Ronnie McDowell, who is back in these movies, but playing a different character. A lot of people would argue this is recycled casting, but he's also giving a very different performance than he gave in the previous type of films. Let me just say, I thought this was brilliant. Because, yes, Roddy McDowell was a huge part of those first few films, at least, you know, two out of the three that we just saw. And I've always heard that he was really, really good. Now, I said he was a remarkable presence in those movies, but I didn't think that, you know, he was as empathetic as he could have been. They made him into the empathetic character of this movie. They have made him actually make a performance that makes you emphasize with him and my god does he do a good job in the beginning and i saw the credits i met roger mcdowell's back i'm like okay well that's weird what the hell is he gonna play and then i knew right away who he was when we see caesar and he's he's amazing you know and you can definitely see to kind of jump a little bit you can definitely see some things that andy circus takes from this that he does in his own performance too and i i really enjoyed seeing that he was back and i really enjoyed seeing this is what people were talking are talking about when they say how good roger mcdowell is in these films your point i was complete when i saw that him in the you know in the opening credits i was like okay well they're giving someone a credit it's going to be flashback scenes or previous footage that's all i expected i did not realize he was caesar and when i understood this was going to be about caesar i know the name from the current films even though i haven't seen them so i knew this was going to be extremely important and he doesn't give the same performance and i think that's what's great yes it's recycled casting Okay, he's got an ape mask, you know, and suit. But this is a different character, and he plays it differently. And I appreciate the heck out of that. He brings it just he brings in Caesar something completely different than he brought with Cornelius, and he does so wonderfully. I admire the hell out of what he's bringing. And yeah, to your point as well, it you know I heard people talking about Roddy McDowell, Roddy McDowell. I was like, well, he was in two films. What, what's everybody? Why is he the the through line. Well, now I see it, and I admire huge what he brings. Well, he brings a different sensibility to this character. He's playing it younger, which is necessary, given the age of Caesar. He's supposed to be 18, if you do the the math. Uh, But he's also got more of a blissful ignorance about him, whereas Cornelius was very educated and erudite sort of part of the elite. This is someone who was predominantly raised in captivity, albeit more structured than just outright slavery, but this is eye-opening for him because he's being walked around. We see Armando has, like, a special permit so he can walk with him on a leash. And Caesar's being exposed to the world that humanity has built for itself. And I think the the time jump could be criticized, but I like that it's another object criticism of humanity that we were so quick to look for our next species to dominate in the name of self-preservation that it happened 18 years in such a short time for something like that to occur. But look at how quickly, given the time frame and what they're drawing from, how quickly Hitler rose to power and transformed into a Nazi Mm -hmm. powerhouse. All of this is powerful stuff, you know, and it's 
thrown in the midst of a science fiction series around the fact that apes are among us, you know, and, and they were in power and now they're not and they're on the other end of it. And you see the tendency of humanity to take control of something and that's what's going on here and that that's what was going on in society as well, unfortunately. We moved away from domesticated pets to now we have, I mean, slave culture is almost too on the nose, but it's kind of like a an immigrant culture where it's the people who are doing, you know, working in dress shops and doing nails, you know, it's that whole, especially here, you know, on the, on the West coast, you know, the whole Asian massage parlors and beauty parlors and nail parlors. And I was like, man, this is, you know, it's something that's used to keep wages at one level so that the upper middle class and wealthy can, can pay less and keep, it's just, it's fascinating how something 50 years ago can play to today so well and still matter so much because yeah there's layers upon layers here and it's i don't know maybe these type of stories just don't go away they just need to be retold and reminded well if you want to peel it back you can certainly look at a class structure as far as economics because it seems like only the the well-off humans can afford to purchase apes as slave labor but also it's very direct with confronting race relations at the time, considering there's public beatings, there's all kinds of things that they were drawing likely from news reports at the time. So it works on almost every level. If you want something a little bit more subversive, you can read into it. But if you're looking for something very blatant, which this movie absolutely is, you can satisfy that as well. The way down the way that the police surround and act towards them. Yep. And by the way, we're not... We're not in the authority of talking about huge political statements and things going on in society. That's not what we're here to do. What we are doing is we're taking this movie and we are seeing the parallels that it is making between what was going on at the time and what is going on in the film. I think it's important that we distinguish that. You know, we're not trying to get any political thoughts out there. But I will say this is a very, as all of these have been, it's a very bold thing to do. It's It had to cause unrest amongst distributors. You know, I mean, Adam, you and I remember when Boys in the Hood was being released and there were shootings at theaters showing that you know there had to be a thought that maybe that could be going on and the fact that these filmmakers took it upon themselves to do this is a very ballsy very respectful thing to do yeah absolutely boys in the colors oh my god you remember the controversy around yeah absolutely the three of us actually swing pretty dang wildly towards and away from each other politically so we're not here to discuss this from a political standpoint i think it's just great to see good sci-fi films make you, I think, cheer towards a societal look and make you feel uncomfortable no matter what side you go on. I think that's important in good, heady sci-fi. And it's just, it's impressive that four films in, they're able to bring that again. Well, that's the core of science fiction is it's using futuristic period to shine a light on the past and be allegorical by its very nature. But also you have to put out the disclaimer that filmmaking by its very nature has always been political in some degree. It's always been about expression. And if you're someone who doesn't like politics in your movies, you're clearly not digging hard enough or you're just looking at it as one side versus the other. Because you could read into almost any type of film, any period, any decade, any genre, and find some kind of statement being made. Like, it's it's unavoidable. As alluded to, Armando takes Caesar to the statue... And he mentions that, yes, there was a pandemic that wiped out dogs and cats. And because apes cannot yet speak, 
Caesar is told that he has to basically play dumb, you know, play up to the stereotype of being a dumb, ignorant, you know, dirty. Anyone else think 2020 in this part? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a part where they tell people to stay inside. Yeah. We're also introduced to Governor Breck, who is the leader of this section of the planet. He's certainly not in charge. He's not the president, but he's sort of in charge of this, this quadrant. And... Yeah, this is the, you know, he's at a turtleneck, so he's evil. Um, and yep. this is my one complaint of the movie. I thought Dr. Zaius was a great antagonist in the first film. He was a lot layered. The mutants offered a good parallel in the second one. And the the, the guy from Escape that was sort of the, the main scientist was a good foil. Uh, this guy is sort of a one-note megalomaniacal villain. Yeah, it's forgive the terminology but it really is more black and white isn't it like you know exactly who the villain is right off the bat and yeah he's more stereotypical he's he's a little maybe a few steps away from having trolling a mustache in in science fiction yeah it's good to have those layers but every once in a while a villain like this isn't too bad it's a good thing we're sitting here on a on a campus in the middle of nowhere because if you put this on an island we're going full-blown bond villain (laughs) <laughs> yes exactly yeah he might as well be in like his headquarters might as well be in a volcano although i'm sure when he talks to the president blofeld's on the other side of the television <laughs> they witness a demonstration involving a gorilla getting beaten and drugged and caesar can't help himself and he shouts lousy human bastards and the guards go all right who said that armando defuses the mm-hmm. situation by saying it was him but they make him say it because his voice is not does not let's see we got we got a guy who's spanish and a guy who's english these do not sound the same so while the, while the villains if you want to call them that are pretty straightforward they're not dumb which i appreciate you know they're on to armando pretty quickly and their steps to find caesar and bring him in doesn't make them look like incompetent agents of this organization armando manages to sneak away him and caesar go underground on a set of stairs, and he tells him to basically infiltrate the enslaved captive ape race and, for lack of a better word, forge his own destiny. Uh, and he says, I'll, I'll come back for you later to, to free you, because he's basically telling him to go hide, because I have to go cover for you. Little does he know this is the last time. I mean, when you watch this scene, it's basically, he might as well have, Ricardo Montalbo might as well have put on his red shirt and said, I'll be dead in about 20 minutes. <laughs> I got to say this. I got to get this off my chest. I had no idea that 2011's Rise was a remake. They remade this film, essentially, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, and that, that was I mean, mentioned at the it, time that it took a lot from Conquest, and you could argue that the other two circus films, which we'll talk about, borrow from the previous films as well. Of the remakes, Rise is the closest to being a straight-up remake. And I had no idea about that. Like, I had no idea there was a Caesar before Andy Serkis came along. You know, all of this is a surprise to me, you know. And they might have mentioned that at the time. And I do remember reviewing that movie at the time. We'll we'll talk about that when we get to that movie. But here, I respected that they're saying these things in this. And that by 2011, they were wanting to get it back on the screen. Yeah, they took inspiration from one of the more famous entries. I mean, this this is nowhere near as divisive or out there as Beneath. It's not like Rise started with uh, a cure for Alzheimer's that turned people into telepathic mutants. Caesar discards his clothing and he hides in a uh, in a cage with some orangutans and he's basically being trained for slavery. And you're starting to see as he walks through, they go to the government organization and he's seeing the ones that are like dealing with filing data. There's some that are just being brutally beaten. There's some that are being burned alive. 
sort of a parallel to them being sprayed with water in the first movie. This, yeah. um, my note is the Bond villain layer, the Bond villain reconditioning layer. Uh, it's, it's um, <laughs> fascinating take because when you go back, you know, to a point where the people, you know, and I'm not just talking from a slavery standpoint, but the conditioning of certain, certain races, certain foreigners into America to only do certain things and separate classes, whether it was Irish, whether it was Africans, whether it was Spaniards. It's just, it's fascinating looking at it at this level. You could also read this as internment camps for the Japanese post-World War II. Completely, yep. But yes, to Adam's sure. point, this is basically when Rosa Klebb is walking through the Specter Basin for Marshall and Love <laughs> and seeing all the different stations, not just because they both have flamethrowers. It's that flamethrower. <laughs> There's a couple things that yeah, somebody finds, you know, something to get on the production on the production crew. One of them being a helicopter, they're going to use every time. But you know, when they got their hands on a mm. flamethrower, it's like, oh, we're using this. Caesar's basically about to be sold. There's an auction in a little bit, but we cut back to Armando, who's being held prisoner by the state. Um, and you could read this as profiling if you want to look at some kind of other part where he's being told, we're getting the backstory about, yep, there was a eight thing. This is the this is the recap of the previous movie done without placing it in the prologue. Yeah, good point. This is very efficient, very economical, what they're doing here. And instead of throwing it all in your face like they normally do, they're, they're telling it in an economic way and not a way that's so in your face that it, it hurts you. You're also being introduced to Breck's inner circle. He's got, like, his minister of propaganda. He's got his, you know, chief of security, and he's got his chief of staff, uh, McDonald, who, yes, you could read this as on the nose, casting the black guy as the one sympathizer with the apes, but they acknowledge that in the movie point blank in a conversation. Yep. I think that because of how they do it, I appreciate that it doesn't feel offensive in that way. You know, they, they know what they're doing. It doesn't feel, I don't know, doesn't feel dirty, doesn't feel slimy. No, it doesn't feel underhanded either. Mm -hmm. Rick has to leave for his Jedi Council meeting, uh, where he's, like, meeting with the other. I I guess, you know, if you're looking for something that's a little bit more explanation-based as far as the current social state of the world, you're going to be disappointed because it's really not here. And this is also this quadrant is really the only world-building that the movie gives you. Like, they don't really cut to any other parts of the world. You don't see a map or, like, uh, news reports all across the country. You have to take this as how the entire world is operating. And that's a result of cutting the budget, right? I would now. imagine so. I mean, you're talking about one, yeah. $1. $1.7 million and you have so many extras in this movie that on with the mm-hmm. makeup that, you know, you shoot around it as best you can with a lot of nighttime shooting and not a lot of close-ups or... Speaking apes, for that matter, outside of two, Caesar is literally sold at a slave auction where, you know, they're bidding on him. They, they talk about how he's a prime physical specimen. I mean, th- this is also something that Tim Burton really runs with in his film, really playing yeah. up the slave allegory. And, you know, I was half expecting Paul Giamatti to show up in this movie. Because, uh, by the way, he <laughs> plays the same character in both Planet of the Apes and 12 Years a Slave. It's literally the same character. Armando is, once again, being interrogated. They They know that his... Circus ape is the child, even though he's got as good of a cover story. He's telling them, ask, ask my circus aides and all that stuff. But they pull out their, their specter torture device. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank God. Like, yep. Yep. On the box, it's like, well, this guy. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman might as well have sued for copyright infringement. 
Wasn't Paul Dean a writer for one of those Bond movies, though? He was one of the writers. So he, he would have come like from that world. But, yeah. you know, swap, swap out yeah. this electronic torture device for a laser. So it's basically like they're the futuristic equivalent of truth serum, where I guess the, the wavelengths make you tell the truth. Realizing he can't fight the machine, Armando kills himself by jumping out a window. Speaking of Jason Voorhees, Garrett, we yeah. got breaking windows that people fall through. <laughs> We sure do. This was disappointing. This had to have been another just result of slicing the budget or something. Like, why not give him an honorary death? This is stupid. Well, it is kind of honorary because he doesn't sell out Caesar. He doesn't sell him out, but at the same time, he's just kind of just, he jumps out a window? You know, not to mention it's just cheap. Oh, yeah. Like, the only thing we're missing is the uh, the dummy being thrown out the window. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you know, exactly. they should have pulled the Death Wish 3. Oh, jeez. Caesar finds Armando is dead, and this is where he rightfully so loses faith in humanity because the one person who showed him any kindness was killed by his own species. So halfway through the movie, he begins to start his his insurrection and rebellion against the humans by gathering up all the other apes through eye contact. And even though they're nonverbal, they can... They view him as the leader because he can speak and he's communicative in a lot of ways. So now we're really starting to see the rebellion that was talked about so much actually begin to uprise. And it don't—it is no coincidence at all that the person he confides in is black, right? I and mean, there, there's just zero coincidence in that. Oh, certainly not. But yeah, I mean, he even tells him, you know, of every of anybody, you would understand what I'm trying to do here. Bold statement to make. Yeah, and he even sure. says during the climax, like as a descendant of slavery. So both mm-hmm. sides thoroughly acknowledge it. But they're still, they're doing this relatively serious because they're meeting in this, like, bunker. They're collecting weaponry. They're collecting kerosene. So they're they're setting up their eventual battle. But I have to ask the question, does this feel too rushed? Yes. Did you, and uh, yes. the only reason, though, the only reason is because we don't, we don't see any apes in other areas other than this one spot. We don't see other cities. We're left to assume. And we don't see the progression of apes from the last film to this one. You know, we go from their circus animals, <laughs> anti-circus animals, to <laughs> them actually being, you know, 20 years of old, uh, which is a massive step. Uh, for this film. So you go with it, at least I go with it, but it, and even the um, the way that he rounds up the apes, the nonverbal communications, which I appreciate and it's accurate, he's established himself as an alpha immediately. It would have been nice to maybe see him get challenged and overcome it, but it does, it, if you're looking for something, you know, depth and that's not this film, I do think it's what the newer films try to do. But it, it works okay for what they're bringing out here. But, yeah, I could have used more of the development of uh, of the conquest and the rise of this rebellion. Well, if you wanted that, just they should have pulled Rogue One, the Star Wars story, and make an entirely superfluous movie about how they got the plans to invade this Capitol building. Oh, I'm sorry. Am I previewing my thoughts too much about how much I hate that movie? Sorry, I'm getting... Yeah, it it, it it does feel a little rushed. Revolutions don't happen overnight, as this movie depicts. <laughs> but to get that 90-minute runtime, I guess you kind of have to be this economical. It's, it, it, but I agree with you. It is too economical. And the one thing I will say is I would have expected in a movie of this ilk, apes to be... There's no Uncle Tom apes to use that term that rat him out to their masters out of self-preservation 
or because that's how they've been indoctrinated to think. Um, it's like the one thing that, I mean, they go through all of the slavery metaphors they can, except for that one, really. There's no Sam Jackson character from Django Unchained, <laughs> um, which I guess is a good thing, because we'll, we'll talk about that next year. But, yep. but yeah, so he's gathering them up, and Breck realizes that Caesar is indeed the ape that they're hunting, even though he's seen him in plain sight, so he puts out a, a manhunt because he's entrusted him to McDonald, who is working with Caesar, and he sends him out on an errand. So McDonald is the, 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 the quote-unquote one good, the, the one good human. You know, he's the, the, the person who's supportive of him. And as we mentioned, you know, his race and that casting is certainly there. But they actually have a conversation about, once he realizes he can speak, about whether or not this is actually going to work. And he does say the line of, you know, you of all people, I thought you'd understand. Breck nevertheless orders Caesar to be executed because he, he believes that, you know, this is the, the prophecy coming true of the one that'll, that speaks will wipe us all out because they have you no reason. Process? You believe it's this boy? Well, at least I don't say his midichlorian count is too high, and that's why we... we Caesar, they should, might, they should have just called him Jesus or Moses. Actually, that would have been funny. Again, I don't think Moses. Again, I don't think I don't think that's coincidental either. You know, the fact that they're calling him Caesar. That, you know, they even make reference yeah, to well, it. Well, there's too. also the there is a religious component, which if you know your your history, a lot of slave owners use the Bible as scripture to explain why they could you know enslave fellow man. Breck hands him a Bible, and that's where he picks the Caesar name. I I don't think it's coincidence to use a Bible there. Not whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, it's. Something about, you know, sorry, but religion used to subjugate and control is, yep, since the dawn of man, essentially, and I'd like that they bring it in here. I got the feeling that he knew, you know, that Caesar was learned and that he actually looked and knew where to find that name in the book. And, mm. and the first Planet of the Apes has some very clear theological statements with how the trial happens and, you know, the law of apes and all that stuff. It's embedded in this franchise. They just didn't really... The last one was very... It was a fish-out-of-water movie mixed with an abortion statement. You know, the second one was really nuclear war-focused. The first one touches on a lot of things. This one's very... It's the most racially charged of the four, even though that's an undercurrent through this entire series. This one puts it the most at the forefront. They go from being an allegory to putting it in your face. Yeah, yeah, they're they're walking that line, and I and I think at this they they were walking that line, and at this point I think they're kind of jumping over it because the allegories were working very well. I think this is a bold place to go, as I've mentioned, but at the same time I, I think it's too in your face, you know, especially when we get towards the last third of this thing. Breck puts Caesar in the same torture device that uh, Armando was also subjected to, where it's a, their electric shock therapy trying to get him to speak. He eventually does, and he says, take pity on me, to which Breck says, F you. And if it wasn't for McDonald cutting the power, which is a bit convenient, uh, Caesar would have been killed. At two, Breck A, is what he should have said. <laughs> and he's not wrong. You're seeing your future prophecy no. come to light. Everything that you were told is going to happen is starting to happen. I mean, the propagation of the human species... Are you going to make that choice? But Caesar needs to die to save humanity. McDonald mm -hmm. cuts the power and he helps Caesar get away by Caesar murdering the torturer, uh, murdering the guy that was in charge of the equipment after he leaves because Brett goes to attend to other stuff. So Caesar now 
has full guns a blazing reason to go after humanity for a multitude of reasons. And they, they proceed to take over ape management, which I really wish they came up with a more clever name. I love that yeah. there's a sign that says Even ape the, management. Yeah, there's a sign. Yeah. <laughs> and I think this is what you mean, Matt, when you say this is a little too quickly told. This comes to fruition pretty quickly. But at the same time, you feel the emotion when it does happen. When he's finally killing this guy who tortured the hell out of him earlier in the film. By the way, again, PG-rated movie. Um, it it hits it hits you hard and you know and and you feel for the for the guy again and i think that has a lot to do with roddy mcdowell's performance and how he's portraying it because any motion left any motion right and they could go it could have gone a little too far mcdowell plays it just right you know we even see an ape cry for humanity that this is all good stuff you know and i'm going to criticize how quickly it's going but at the same time it's all good stuff that really hits you hard the nice thing is though with only a 90 minute runtime you're not given time to think that it's going on too long. And it, you know what? Better too short than too long. Better to have you wanting more because, you know, if this was a two-hour film, we might be complaining about, uh, why did they just get to it? We know where it's going to go or what parts do you cut? I'd rather be having a discussion that you could have added more as opposed to wishing they cut more because you're not given time to ponder. It's just we're going to go, go, go. You could argue that's represented in Caesar's character where he is all emotion and rage, and it's only when he slows down to think that his bloodlust is satisfied. So you could argue the pacing kind of reflects that. Yeah. Because he gathers up the apes, and they proceed to go to the command center, and we're getting full-on riot police, so we're seeing stuff from reality brought into life. And, yeah, they the, the rest of this movie, the last 20 minutes, is a full-on action movie far eclipsing the scale yep. of the previous movies. This thing goes, as bananas. if I can say it, yeah, bananas. I was going to say bonkers, but I went with bananas. Uh, it goes crazy, guys. And you know what? I like that. You know, I like the franticness of it. And it just keeps going. Goddamn, how many times did we see this in the late 2010s? You know, there were things like this all the damn time on the news. And to see these apes just have all their weapons and go after humanity like this and to have mcdonald kind of sit there and go oh shit like this is what he had in mind and to see it all unfold i dug this i dug the end of this film quite a lot actually it actually it ramps up more than i thought it was going to because when you first start to see the apes come out and shumble down my note is so they're doing like a uh, like a zombie reveal of all these apes you know starting to shuffle down the street and the darkness and the fog and it felt very day of the dead type of, you know, reveal of all these zombies and then the apes just emerging and what they're capable of and then putting weapons in their hands on top of it and we are outmatched, we're overmatched and whew, this thing turns ridiculously violent really quick and it, it's poor effects but it is bloodlust just, just glorious in the way that it's like, you know what, we are going to turn these last 20 minutes, 15 minutes into an action shoot 'em up that the 80s would be proud of. This movie was directed by Paul Verhoeven to be Rayan X. Yes. Oh, jeez. Adam, you're criticizing these effects? You thought they were poor? I think every time somebody gets shot, and the this isn't going to make any sense to Matt, but the like five different tones I get for blood that no red is consistent when everybody's oh. getting shot. Like, <laughs> it's, like, every, it's like Resident Evil with the, when you can change the blood color. Like... That stuff looks really bad, but I'm having fun watching the action. But it's, you know, if you're going to zoom in on blood spurting out of somebody, 
it, it, that's when it turns it turns into a B movie in those moments. Well, I also like that this the the actions of the apes being as violent as they are reflects the and the fact that humanity is still so shitty reflects the nihilism of the previous movies. Like, and in, in, in our own way, we kind of deserve this. Mm-hmm. We trained them to be able to do things. You know, we made them more adaptable to us. If we did not make them into our pets, they wouldn't be able to handle these weapons, these firearms. We caused mm-hmm. this not just in our treatment of denigrating them, but in trying to turn them into our slaves and our pets. And if it wasn't for Revenge of the Sith, this would be the most famous sci-fi movie that frequently uses the word no. Because <laughs> they say the word no in this movie about as much as Katniss yells, where's PETA in those Hunger Games movies. You going to reference every one of our retrospectives in this podcast? <laughs> well, we got six more movies to go, so I'm sure I can hit it. I mean, we've, yeah. we've touched on like six right here. And the apes were seeing that even though they can't speak, they can work as as a group, because they surround them through different angles. There's some on top with the nets. As they go towards the city, they can they can use Molotov cocktails, no problem, to form a perimeter. It's showing that, yeah, we're, we're basically, they might as well have had those people with the sandwich board signs saying the end is near, walking around the streets. Seeing <laughs> the nets and some of those actions, made, it took me back to that first Planet of the Apes film, and I felt like you could see that ape army come from this, and I liked that narrative. It's what you alluded to, the whole thing of we gave, we gave them all the tools they needed to wipe us out. They infiltrate the command center, they take Breck outside to be executed, and alright, now we can talk about the director's cut. Because the original ending, they beat him to death. What? Uh, the original movie ends with him being executed, but they had a preview screening. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Where it was so violent that producers said, can we rework this? But they did not have the budget allocated to do that. So here's what they did. Roddy McDowell recorded a compliment to his final speech that was different dialogue. If you notice in this movie, when he's speaking at the end, there's a lot of close-ups of his eyes where you don't see his mouth moving. And the gorillas hitting Breck with the butt ends of their rifles, they play that backwards so it looks like they're raising their their rifles to be pacifists. So it's all editing that changed how this movie ends, not completely reshooting a different ending. Oh, wow. So they were Batman v Superman before Batman No, because he doesn't say save Martha. <laughs> so in the original cut, they killed him, and then test audiences rebelled? No, the producers or... rebelled. Um, this entire series has been nihilistic. I mean, every single one is. I mean, the second one, we end the planet. Well, given the fact that there is another one and the producers are the ones who put the kibosh on it, it gives me the feeling that they wanted him for the next one. And that's what they McDonald's saying, you know, like, don't succumb to brutality. Caesar is basically ignoring him and he says, I'm going to kill him. But Lisa, who is the other ape, the only female at least, she is able to articulate the word no. And she's the first one that can speak outside of Caesar. And that gives them all pause. And Caesar basically decides, we could also use scripture, but use it in the way to be humane rulers. So the apes win. And yeah, humanity doesn't get wiped out, but we're still ultimately about to be enslaved. As he says, we have seen the birth of the planet of the apes. Yeah. At least that's the same ape that he got brought in for the booty call with, right? Yeah. The one that was laying down like, Princess Leia and Cell Block 1138. And well that that is also Dr. Brayton from the previous movie. That's the same actress. Yep. I read that. I thought that was cool. 
So you could argue this is the the least nihilistic ending of the four, but it's still drawing us to that conclusion where humanity will no longer be the dominant species. Well, the funniest part is it was supposed to be as nihilistic as those last movies, <laughs> and and producers cut it. Yeah. I mean, the movie might as well. I'm sure initially it ended with them like beheading him, and Caesar holds up his head like Medusa. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, to the, the birth of Planet of the Apes. But if you didn't know that, you wouldn't think anything of it because of how, how they edit around us. Yeah. Better editing than last week, oh, for sure. sure. <laughs> now, it's also worth noting, one of the other big changes was that in the original script, there was a pre-title sequence that was supposed to open the movie. Because if you notice, the other three films have one. If yeah. you recall, there's that scene where Breck is talking about the ape that got killed for physically assaulting, and McDonald tells him, you know, he was covered with welts and bruises. Uh, that was supposed to be the opening of the movie, where the police shoot that ape. Now, that scene made its way into the novelization and to the Marvel comic adaptation of this movie. And I saw that that was cut when I was reading oh, that. Yeah. And I think there's a good argument for leaving that in, because I think it kind of parenthesizes the film with the way it starts and then the way that it ends here. I do think it has its place. Well, there's also that, that line of um, Breck saying, we subjugate you because you reflect our darkest impulses or something like that. You are everything we hate about ourselves, which is why. It's how Conquerors, ironically using that title, justified their, they always felt a compulsive need to explain why they wanted to subjugate people, mm-hmm. non-people. But shortest film in the series ends at about 85 minutes. Yeah, and it ha- still had a lot to yeah, say. Yeah, I mean, it gives you something <laughs> to think about for 30 seconds of credits, so... On a scale yeah. of 1 to 10, what do you feel about Conquest of the Planet of the Apes? I'm going to go to Adam first. Funny, this film ends really abruptly. <laughs> we get here to the end, and this thing this thing ends like they not ran out of money, ran out of film stock, and just put 30 seconds of credits on the end. It's amazing how good the performances throughout this entire film are. You know, we criticize some of the casting and we can make fun of some of the villain the bond villainess of it but i think everybody's actually delivering a pretty dang good performance throughout montabon i didn't know that he was going to last as short as he did but he still decides he's going to show up and deliver quality roddy mcdowell man it is amazing how he can under makeup give a different performance steal the show as well as he does and still be just as captivating for a film that, for all intents and purposes, could have been a montage in a different movie. Like, this entire 85 minutes could have just been a 10-minute montage, a 5-minute montage to tell the story. It does so really well, from the rising of the apes, of our responsibility on that, to our subjugation, to Caesar just deciding that he's not going to put up with this anymore, and it... it tells the race story, it tells the, not just on race, but just of those in control wanting to subjugate others. It's low budget, it, that's obvious. It's, it's production value, though, still does a good job. The apes themselves look good. You know, we criticize some of the, you know, especially the second film, because what they spent in, in makeup and costuming was, was really apparent. But here, I thought the apes looked good, and I appreciated that. It's, it is a amazing achievement for the fourth film to still deliver a quality story, still have me engaged, and still want to watch another one. At the end of this, I'm like, oh man, I can't wait to see what's next. But I didn't want to do it till we had this discussion, because I didn't want to color this talk. But I'm ready for the next one, which 
I don't know if it is it Rise of the Planet of the Apes or um, Battle. Battle. Battle for the Planet of the Apes, which, you know, I don't know, Battle of the Network Stars. So <laughs> it they do a really good job of telling a story, still making it matter from a socio political standpoint, and I admire the heck out of it before it. It's minimalistic, but it works all around. It's a really worthy entry in this series. Definitely better than the second one. I got a big fondness for the third one, though, like that. that I, I had a joy with that. But, damn, yeah, it, it's still impressive. I'm going to give this a seven. For everybody crapping on the way this series goes, this series really delivers throughout, other than the second one. And there's some good stuff to be said there. But, man, this series delivers. And from a sci-fi standpoint... Yeah, this is kind of what you want in a sci-fi film. All right, we got a seven. First score on the board. Garrett, where do you stand? I was curious coming into this series, thinking about the term franchise and how this series was a real part of the lexicon before the term franchise was. And when Matt said we were doing this series, I thought, how are they going to handle one of the first science fiction series to be a majorly successful series. And the only thing I'd really heard, as I'd mentioned, that there are part there's some of these movies that go absolutely bonkers. And so far, the second one's the only one that has really been at times a non-enjoyable watch. And watching this one and realizing that, oh my God, Rise was a remake of this one, I thought, okay, I know what's gonna happen in this one. And I kind of did know what was gonna happen, but that didn't take away from my enjoyment of it because of the centerpiece of what was absent in the second one, Mr. Roddy McDowell. His performance as Caesar through that makeup, and the makeup is less. You know, we didn't really talk about the makeup in this one. I don't have many good things to say about the makeup in this because I, I, I do think that the masks are more noticeable here, and I think there are times when the lips don't move as smooth as they did in previous films. But, you know, I'm not going to really give too many criticisms there. Matt, you said that they never make the same movie twice, and I've definitely noticed that. And this, this is a good, enjoyable watch. Now, it is fast-forwarded a bit. You know, you don't really get much of a chance to really emphasize with what's going on. But the fact that Roddy McDowell's playing Caesar with so much humanity and so much heart, you have no choice but to feel for what he is going through, especially once Armando's killed. Then you see his humanity snap, and he is off to the races towards the end of this. This thing goes crazy at the end. It, it, it really does. It, the, the, the riots that go on here, it was kind of uncomfortable for me to watch because, as I mentioned, it reminded me a lot of 1991 Los Angeles. And all through those early to mid-90s, you turn on the news and you could not not see a riot or something taking place in Los Angeles. And that's what the apes are doing in this one. The end, very abrupt, violent for a PG movie, but that doesn't mean it's bad. I think I think there's a lot to enjoy here. This is an enjoyable seven for me. You know, it, it has a statement. It's more in your face than it has been in the past. But given the fact that we have been with not this character, but this actor, and this actor is carrying another character on his shoulders and carrying this movie, quite frankly, on his shoulders and does it in a very remarkable way. And one of the things that this movie really made me do was want to pop on Fright Night again, which I did right after I watched it for this podcast. So, yeah, 7 out of 10 for me for Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. I'm really curious with what they go with in number 5. Well, it sounds like we're pretty much in lockstep, although my score is not going to 100% reflect that because I'm trying to score these within the context of the franchise. You know, I've given a 9 to the first one, a 6 to the second one, and a 7.5 to the third one. So when I watch this, this is probably the... Of the sequels, it's the one I've seen the most because I, I think it's it's 
the best paced, and it's also got the, you know, the action-packed last 20, 25 minutes that the other, the third one in particular just doesn't really have. That one's a manhunt and a, and a shootout that's significantly smaller. This one gives you the scale, uh, which I really appreciate. Yeah, I can knock the makeup, absolutely, but I think the that McDowell's performance here as the anchor is really what sells the entirety of this movie. Um, even in the few scenes where he's not in the movie, you do feel his absence. It's impressive that he can deliver that monologue at the end throughout all that makeup, and a lot of times just his eyes, because, you know, they had to re-edit the last portion of the movie considerably. I think this is the, of the three sequels, this is my favorite up to this point. I think it's a worthy entry. Yeah, it's certainly blunt and straightforward with what it's trying to say, but I think it's very economically told by a skilled director. So I'm going to go a little bit higher than you guys. I'm going to go eight on this one, an ape on ten, if you will, but Oh, yeah, said the guy who used the banana pun. Yeah, it's literally <laughs> low-hanging fruit at, at this at this junction. Yeah, I, I mean, look, this movie literally has him peeling a banana and giving it to other Captain Apes. So they mm-hmm. they, they set themselves up. But yeah, this is um, it, it makes you excited to see what the next one is going to be. So it's 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 one of the entries that has a good lead, sort of a good lead in, like the last one did. Because, you know, the world doesn't end, at least in that sense. Yeah, and, and one thing I came out of this thinking about as we think about next week's film is everything I'd read said that Jacobs was thinking this would be the last film. And next week's film is going to be the last, at least, part of this original series. And so I'm wondering if they ended on a cliffhanger or if they ended in a way that conclusively concludes this series. Yeah, there's only one movie left before we take a near 30-year break. So... How are you guys feeling about going into battle for the Planet of the Apes? I worry that there's a reason they stopped making them. Like, I've been waiting for that point, and I wonder if this is just, if they go one too far. But we'll see. I've said that every week, and every film, I'm like, man, this brings something I didn't expect. Man, this brings something I didn't expect. I had a great conversation with my dad over the weekend, and we were discussing, because he was just like, there was a commercial for the new Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. He's like, did you see that? I'm like, well, you know what? I got something to tell you. That's <laughs> what we're doing. So we had a conversation about these films, and it's just, I tell you, I'm looking forward to seeing what we get. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as Adam, and as I mentioned, I know that Jacobs was looking at this as being his last film, or being the last film in this series, and it ended up being next week's film, and it just makes me think, is there something abrupt that happened that made them stop, or is it a satisfying ending? I'm thinking it's the latter, but again... I've heard all of these movies are different. I've heard some of them are bonkers. So I'm thinking, okay, what is it that made them actually stop? But at the same time, I'm not going to really look at it like that. Like, what are they going to have to say next week? You know, what are they going to have to say that they haven't said yet? I have no idea what to expect next week, although the title tells me it's going to be a little more of what we saw at the end of this one. So bring it on and let's see uh, how they conclude this 70s series. Yeah, Garrett, to your point, that's the thing. We saw, you know, Planet of the Apes is almost like the end. You know, the beginning is the end of this entire thing. So we can only have so many mid-cools. You know, this isn't Star Wars where you're going to have 50 freaking projects in between two things. You can only go so far. Yeah. And in the 70s, you didn't have even sequelitis like you do nowadays. So who knows? Maybe it's just a, we reached a fulfilling conclusion. We'll see. Well, we'll see if it's a conclusion. I'm the only one who's seen it, so I can't really show my hand either one way or the other, but there will definitely be plenty of stuff to talk about going forward as we conclude this part of Planet of the Apes. This concludes our discussion of Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, and until next time, boys, I 
a descendant of podcasters, I'm asking you to show humanity. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Let me make a last appeal to your reason before we inflict more of this on you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast. Thank you. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Tell me something, McDonald. Can we make the future what we wish? And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. Aldo was right. War has come. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. So many questions I want to ask. And if you enjoyed this review, please head on over to percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast platform of choice to access our Percolated Media archives and hear our reviews of other franchises like Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Pirates of the Caribbean, the films adapted from the published works of Stephen King, Top Gun, the DC Universe featuring Batman, the Superman DC Universe, and so many more. And so, Mandemus, we must be patient and wait. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Do they look like just apes to you? Given the power to alter the future, have we the right to use it? The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is edited by Garrett. I'll abide by that fine. You see what I have to say? The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is voice narrated by Adam. You just imagine that he hurt you. For the moment... We should follow their example. The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. In one of the countless billions of galaxies in the universe lies a medium-sized star, and one of its satellites a green and insignificant planet is now dead. You know, it, it's funny. We have what four films in five years, right? That's that's where we're at at this point. Yep. All right. We have four films in five years. One of the things I appreciate and admire about it, it doesn't spoon feed you 
spoon, spoon, good, good English. It does not spoon feed you what came before. A lot of people would argue this is recycled casting, but he's also giving a very different performance than he gave in the previous type of films. Completely. Let me say this was, go, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go you ahead. go first. Let me just say. Because you could read into almost any type of film, any period, any decade, any genre, and find some kind of statement being made. Like, it's, it's unavoidable. Yeah, that, and that's what I was kind of trying to say. You guys kind of worded it a lot better than I did. But, yeah, that's what we're trying to say. Remember, I was a writer before I came, became a podcaster, so. <laughs> and I have an English degree. It doesn't mean shit. <laughs> I like turtles. <laughs> well, if they enslaved turtles, this movie would be five hours long. Because that, upri- <laughs> that uprising would have taken a long time. <laughs> You know, I was half expecting Paul Giamatti to show up in this movie. Because, uh, by the way, he plays the same character in both Planet of the Apes and 12 Years a Slave. It's literally the same character. So I haven't seen 12 Years a Slave. Uh, it's one of those movies you'll watch it once and you'll never watch it again. Mm. That's just because of the white guilt. It's not It's it's not a fun movie to watch. Like If, if you own this movie on Blu-ray, I'm like, it's just going to sit there and collect dust. Because I, I can't imagine you would, you would watch it because I, I appreciate it. That's me with American okay. Beauty. Well, no, see, I didn't like that movie before all the Kevin Spacey shit came out. Now it's like, I want to burn a copy that exists, yeah. and I'm sure Sam Mendes might as well disown it. Uh, speaking of being disowned, Armando is... But the fact that Roddy McDowell's playing Caesar with so much humanity and so much heart, you have no choice but to feel for what he is going through, especially once Armand Antonio, is that his name? Antonio or Armando? Armando. Armando. Uh, Armando. <laughs> 